Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church, and I'm super thankful that you would join us here on our podcast. For the next four weeks, we're doing something just a little bit different. Our sister church, Doxa in Bellevue, does an annual summer series called Voices, where they bring in outside communicators uh, to bless the congregation during the summer months. Well, this year, we get to join with them. And so for the next four weeks, instead of hearing from me, you're gonna hear from Jackie Hill Perry, from Mark Sayers, John Tyson, and John Mark Comer. I could not be more excited for this, and I know this is going to be a blessing to you. The passage I wanna speak from, and I'm gonna be talking about the role of prayer and spiritual formation, is Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. This is what it says. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is God's word. There was a doctoral student at Princeton and he came to Albert Einstein and he said, what on earth should I do my dissertation on? It feels like everything that can be researched has been researched. And Einstein replied to him, prayer, research prayer. Somebody has to find out about prayer. And even though as followers of Jesus, we know that we should pray. It's, it's modeled in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's so central to Jesus' ministry and life. Sometimes we can struggle with prayer. We can look at other religions. We can look at how the Muslims pray and their commitment to five times a day, physically prostrating themselves before others. Sometimes we can look at the cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who seem to have so much more zeal in their relationship with God, particularly around the area of prayer, than many Christians have. And it's been my experience pastoring, particularly through this difficult crisis, uh, it's been my experience a lot of people have disappointment around the issues of prayer. There's so many questions. Why does God seem to answer sometimes and not other times? Maybe you grow up in a tradition where prayer was very formulaic. Maybe it was only written prayers, or maybe it was like you had to pray the Acts prayers, or maybe you grew up in one of those faith traditions where it was like, pray the prayer of Jabez for blessing and favor. Sometimes we're disappointed because we really cry out to God according to his word with all of our hearts, and it feels like God just doesn't come through. Well, how do we grow in prayer in spite of all of our questions and in spite of all of our confusions? How can prayer actually be a source of spiritual formation changing us into the image of Jesus. Well, I think this passage shows us that key. It's been my experience when you wanna grow in prayer that in order to end up at the place where Jesus ends up, you have to go on a journey. So the first part of that journey is by praying very, very simple prayers, prayers that I wanna call prayers of request. And this is where often when we're new believers, very young in our faith, we would never say this explicitly. We would never say God is a genie 
but it actually feels like he sort of is. It, it feels like whatever we ask, God does for us. And I remember as a new believer coming across this passage in Matthew chapter 7 and reading it and just being and feeling like I had found the key to the universe. Matthew 7 says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For anyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We pray to God for what we want. And so often at this stage of our faith, he just seems to do this. He just seems to respond. You know, uh, at, on, on Mother's Day and on Father's Day, how churches sometimes do those kid montages where they get all the kids in the kids' ministry and they line them up and they say, what do you love about your mom or what do you love about your dad? Well, our church did that on Father's Day. And I, I didn't know what my kids were going to say. We had a lot going on in our family at that time. And you never want to be that pastor who when their kids go up and when their kids come up on the montage, they say something where everyone's like looking at your leadership like there's something off in your house. My son gets on and he goes, I like it that my dad plays with me. And then my daughter gets on and says this, I, you know what I love about my dad? My dad gives me everything I want. And then the camera moves on. And then I'm worried that everybody's going to think I'm just spoiling my daughter. But here's the truth. I did spoil my daughter and I basically gave her everything she wanted. Why? What was actually happening? Well, in the very early stages, I wanted to establish my heart for her and her character. And in some sense, this is what God often does in the early stages of our faith. He answers our prayers because he wants us to know he has power and he wants us to know that he's good. So what God is doing is establishing his identity in our eyes and in our hearts. We can trust him. We can trust that he can do what he says. We can trust his heart that it is for us, not against us. This can become a huge component in our lives. And these can be real prayers. We can still be stepping out in faith, but we find that we take small steps and God moves in amazing ways. These are prayers of request. I became a Christian the weekend I turned 17 in a Pentecostal youth camp. And immediately it was one of those conversions where I left the meeting saying, I want to serve God with my whole life. I was born again, but I felt like my entire future had been born again. And I sensed God say into my heart that I was supposed to come to America to study theology. And I had dropped out of high school as a butcher when I was 16. I didn't have a high school diploma. It just seemed impossible. And then in what can only be described as a New Testament kind of miracle, I got a free ride to study theology at a Bible college in Georgia. Now, I had money to pay for that ticket to get over there, but I was so early in my faith and I was probably just like a touch charismatic that one miracle wasn't enough. So I wanted to do a test. God, if this is really your will, I'm gonna, I, I want to know. I need a dramatic sign as if the scholarship without the high school diploma wasn't enough. So what I did is I took the money that I had for my ticket and I bought copies of the Jesus film. And there was a guy who was selling VHS. This is the late 90s. VHS copies of the Jesus film. And I bought 200 copies 
and I handed them out to all of my neighbors in my community, knocked on the door and said, what's up? It's uh, John here from the butcher shop. Hey, I'm moving to America to go to Bible college. And I didn't want to leave without telling you about the good news of Jesus. So I bought this for you as a gift. I, gave, I, I door knocked and gave this to 200 of my neighbors. And then I was like, okay, God, I need to know if it's your will. I need you to provide the money for my ticket to go to America. And sure enough, so I'm just waiting in this tension. Where's it going to come? Is it going to come a check in the mail? Is somebody going to call me out of the blue? Is somebody come to the butcher shop and give me money? And none of this was happening. And then right before I left at my farewell party, people wrote cards and letters to me and many of them were filled with money. And when I counted it up, it was the exact amount of money to buy the ticket to come to the US. And I remember just thinking there, holding this money, God, you're so good I put my heart out to you and you met my needs. These are prayers of request. This is the stage of our prayer where God is establishing his identity to us. Have you had encounters like that? You remember those early years of your faith where you're like, God, please have my boss call me in the next five minutes. And then being right on five minutes, you're like, you feel like you have this direct line to heaven and it just seems so beautiful and true and real and immediate. It's a beautiful stage of our faith. However, if we're not careful, we can get stuck here and God always wants to draw us into the next level of our faith. And that's what this is. It's about relationships. These are prayers of being with God. These are not prayers for what God can do. These are are prayers about being with him in person. It's a shift from moving from seeking God's hand to seeking God's face. Our attention begins to change. And this is what happened in uh, Psalm 27. This is what happened in David's life. He says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And sometimes this experience can feel sudden, like it feels like God sort of turns off the 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 tap of blessing to draw us into his presence. And sometimes it's a a slow shift of our focus and attention. But it, it becomes less about what we want God to do for us and more about just being with him. In this stage of prayer, in this process of spiritual formation where God is taking us deeper into his heart, I found that he begins to release two cries towards him in the heart of a believer. The first one is the Abba cry. And this is a beautiful passage from Romans chapter 8. And it says this, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, all good parents don't want to spoil their children by giving them everything they they want at the moment that they ask. At some point, the parent is going to want to establish not just their character and their power, but their love and that intimate connection. And it's in this stage of prayer, prayers of relationship, that God begins to raise a cry in our spirits. And that cry is, Abba, it's Father, I want you, I need you. And again, this is a shift where we just want Him, we want to be in His presence. And this word in the Greek, cry, 
We cry, Abba, Father. This is not like a muted intellectual, intellection, a sort of reasonable sort of prayer. This is a visceral release of the Spirit. Dad, I want you. I want to know you. I want to be with you. And often at this level of prayer, what God is doing is establishing our identity. He's breaking off that orphan spirit. He's breaking off the worldliness that's been left that says we have to prove we have to strive. We have to earn. It's breaking away that pride of spiritual performance and just drawing us deeper into his heart. Now, when I became a Christian in all of that zeal, when God was answering my early prayers, I got to be honest, and I actually don't know if there's a way around this, but I sort of took on a pharisaical spirit. I was so driven. I was so passionate for God's word. I would share the gospel with almost anything that would move. I mean, I was just a man on mission, man on fire. And then I had to sort of realize that there was some brokenness from my childhood in that drivenness. And it was during this process of crying, Abba, Father, where God took me deeper into relationship with him, took away the orphan spirit, showed me that I was loved by the grace of God, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, not based on my works, or my outcome, or my performance, but just by his loving choice. And it was learning to rest in the security of that. It was taking my identity and aligning it with his heart and deepening my intimacy and my union with him. Now, one of the challenges is that many people can be disoriented when they move from just praying prayers of request to this season of relationship. Because sometimes people think, wow, I wonder if it's going to be like this forever. And then God stops answering those immediate requests to draw them deeper into his heart. And they get discouraged and they shrink back. And it doesn't mean that these people stop believing in God, stop attending church, stop participating in God's mission. It means that they just stop really growing in prayer because they don't want to be hurt. They can't trust. But it's important that we lean in to this relationship and we allow God to release the Abba cry. The second thing God does in this season is he releases the bridal cry. And that's, that's not really a word we uh, talk about a lot. We don't view the church as, we, we view the church as the body of Christ or the army of God. But we sometimes can be uncomfortable with the feminine language. The church is the bride of Jesus. But this is our actual reality. Revelation 22, at the end of it, it says this, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And it says in this section, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Jesus, we need you. We want you. Now, in this phase of a relationship, what God is doing is breaking off whatever's left of our worldliness and our worldly desires. And he's weaning us off our addiction to the pleasures of the age and giving us a vision for God's kingdom. And sometimes this can be painful. All of a sudden, we're aware of our own sinfulness in fresh ways. Very often, we see the brokenness of our world and the broken systems of government, so much injustice, so much wickedness. It just grieves the spirit and a cry begins to rise up. Please, Lord, bring your kingdom. Give me an eternal perspective. I want heaven. Now the spirit rises with an eternal cry, the bride longing for the groom. When I was a new believer, uh, I was a part of a church that did quite a lot of sort of end times prophecy events. 
and they're always bringing in guest speakers to talk about the horned beasts and the EU and uh, the mark of the beast and technology and uh, apoloct- apolo- uh, sorry, visions from the book of Revelation with armies that were represented, uh, the locusts, and I just, so many of these things I sat through that at the time seemed incredible, but in retrospect, you're like, what was that all about? And uh, so what it, what it produced in me was this desire to say, well, before all of that crazy stuff happens, I better get married. Before the crazy stuff happens, I at least want to have kids. Before the crazy stuff happens, I at least want to buy a home and I want to travel. In essence, I was saying, Jesus, I want you to come, but just not yet. Let me do the things in this life built around my goal. But in this season, God will break us of all of our worldly ambitions and put our whole hearts into a longing from his presence. So the first level, these are prayers of request where God establishes his character. The second stage of prayer, these are prayers of relationship where it's not about what he does, it's about who he is. And the primary goal of this, I think, is God freeing us from an addiction to the immediate and outcomes. There's this beautiful scene in the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are getting ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And we can see in this moment, though they have faith, they realize they don't have to be in control. They just trust God regardless of what he does. And this is what it says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There's a beautiful scene right here because they no longer have to have God act according to their will. They're willing to just say loyalty to our covenant God, that's the most important thing. That's what this phase is about, his heart. It's about trusting him. It's about longing for his kingdom, breaking off the orphan spirit, raising up the Abba cry, giving us a vision for eternity. Now, when you hear these things here, you can, it can be tempting to think like, wow, that sort of feels like such a, such a deep level of prayer. Could there be anything beyond that? And I want to submit that there is. And what there is is shown in this passage that we looked at at the start of this talk from Luke chapter 22. And these prayers are not just prayers of request or relationship. These are prayers of relinquishment. These are prayers where we learn to, to let go and to surrender. Relinquishment is a challenging word because, again, we don't use it very often. It's like, what's God been teaching you in your life? Well, I'm really just studying a theology of relinquishment. It it feels sort of awkward even to pronounce. But to, to relinquish means to give up, to surrender, to renounce, to let go. And this is what we see happening in the garden. It says this, He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down and he prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Take the cup. In the Old Testament, the cup had the idea of drinking down divine judgment. We see this in Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Habakkuk 2, Zechariah 12. But here Jesus says, 
there's a cup coming for me. Now, as far as I can tell, uh, looking through the Gospels, there's only one prayer that Jesus really prayed for himself that he wanted. And his prayer was not answered. It was, Lord, Father, is there any way? But if not, I'm willing to do it. And here's the key insight about the next stage of prayer. It's this. Prayers of relinquishment change us in the kind, into the kinds of people willing to do the Father's will. Willing to do the Father's will. See, most of us think that prayer is about speaking to God so we can get what we want. But Philip Yancey says this, In the end, I learned that God has ordained prayer as a means of getting God's will done on earth, not ours. Prayer, when we wrestle with God in the relational phase, he will begin to make us into the kinds of people willing to do his will. And this is why it's important, because we have been so formed out of the imagination of late modern culture that when we think and when we act and when we dream at such a deep formative level, we are still dreaming and acting and thinking out of the imagination of the world. And ultimately, the deep work of formation is a work of surrender where God asks us, God asks us to be the kinds of people willing to do the hard things that build his kingdom that the vast majority of people do not want to do. What God does in this process of surrender is he begins to change our vision from a vision of success in the American culture to surrender in the kingdom of God. You see, if we were to be really honest and if you were to sit down and ask the question, what do you want out of your life? The vast majority of us would say, I want to be married to someone that I find really interesting and physically attractive. I want to have kids who grow up to be emotionally healthy and basically winners. I want to have financial security, but I don't want to work too hard. So I want a really good paying job without too much stress. I'd love to be able to go on like really exciting vacations that are Instagram worthy and fill my heart with joy. And I'd love to be able to retire with a ton of money and leave a legacy and not have anything to worry about. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that those things are implicitly wrong. I'm just saying that they are not a kingdom first mentality. If you were to ask the typical non-believer in Seattle, What do you want out of life? They would give almost that identical list. And so we have to realize that there's so much of the world's vision inside of us that God has to take us to a place where we're willing to surrender and do the hard things, the sacrificial things that actually move the kingdom ball forward. And this is why Eugene Peterson very honestly says this, be slow to pray. Praying puts us at risk of getting involved with God's conditions. Praying most often doesn't get us what we want, but what God wants, something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interests. And when we realize what is going on, it is often too late to go back. Prayer begins to change our vision to God's vision and not our own. The second thing that these prayers of relinquishment do is they begin to change our motives. When we say, Lord, whatever you want for my life, you can can have my whole life. 
God begins to do a work in our character where we stop worrying about what we want and we care about his kingdom and we care about other people. And the self-righteousness, the self-sins, they begin to die. This is how Richard Foster put it. He said, it means freedom from self-sins, self-sufficiency, self-pity, self-absorption, self-abuse, self-aggrandizement, self-castigation, self-deception, self-exaltation, self-deprecation, self-indulgence, self-hatred, and a host of others just like them. It means freedom from the everlasting burden of always having to get our own way. It means freedom to care for others, to genuinely put their needs first, to give joyfully and to give freely. So when we're willing to surrender and say, God, not my will and not just my relationship with you, but your kingdom and other people, God will begin to change our motives. So we actually want that even though it costs us. And then the last thing I think happens in this process is that prayer begins to change our will. When we get into this level of fellowship and intimacy with God, when we're willing to move just beyond a relationship with him and into surrender to his purposes, a sort of supernatural power is released that enables us to do that which we would never choose to do on our own. Praying these prayers of surrender gives us fuel in the moments of challenge and crisis to do what it is that God has asked us to do. Haddon Robertson notes on Jesus' prayer and Jesus' will to obey the Father the following. Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have been worried about the future. If he is so broken up when all he is doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with a calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet, when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage and his three friends fell apart and they fell away. You see, there's a kind of intimacy when we're willing to enter not just into the fellowship of the resurrection, but also the fellowship of the suffering. When we're willing to go to that redemptive edge of brokenness, to give up our own personal agendas, to stop being formed into the way of the world with the world's vision and the world's desires and the world's values. When we're willing to enter into God's heart for God's purposes and God's kingdom, he gives us a sort of power that enables us in the hardest moments to do it. And even though it breaks our heart, to do it with joy. And I want to just say, look, look at the time of history that God has put us in. You know, you're here at this time facing these exact issues because God trusts you and he has entrusted to you the stewardship of his church and the advancement of God's kingdom. The question I think he's always wanting to know is, who will bear the burden with me? Who can I count on to enter into such a level of cruciformity, such deep formation that they're no longer captivated and enslaved to the vision of the world, but they're willing to give their lives 
like Christ himself did, to work for the healing and restoration of the world, to, to hold their hands against the wounds of the world so the healing power of God's love and God's grace and God's kingdom breaks out. Many people refuse to go to this level of depth in prayer and this level of formation. But it all starts by being willing to pray that prayer, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Kierkegaard said this, God creates everything out of nothing and everything which God is to use, he first reduces to nothing. And so often before God can really use us to steward his kingdom, he has to break us in ways that are painful so we actually want to live for his kingdom and not our own. And I believe that's the invitation of the moment. It's not just to care about what's happening in the world, but it's to care about what's happening in us so that we can appropriately respond, not out of fear, but out of love to be a part of the solution of God's kingdom in our lives, families, neighborhoods, communities, and our city. And so I, I want to close just by perhaps asking this question. While I've been preaching and talking about a call to surrender, to relinquish, has the Holy Spirit been just bringing something up in your heart? Is there maybe something that you've just been hiding in a little corner of your heart, something that you're maybe cherishing, and you felt God say to you, surrender it to me, I want that. I want that part of your life. I want that part of your heart. Be willing to surrender that to me. Maybe it's in the area of relationships. Maybe over COVID uh, and quarantine, you've gotten into some unhealthy habits and God says, I have mercy for you, but I want those. Let those go. Surrender those things. Maybe there's something in your marriage or in your parenting and you sense God saying, I need you to surrender that. Maybe your very foundation has been shaken either financially or vocationally and you sense God saying, give me the pieces you're trying to hold on to so I can redirect your life for my kingdom. So here's the truth. The future belongs not to the strong. The future belongs to the surrendered, those willing to do the Father's will in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe that God is calling his church and your church deeper into a process of formation through prayer. And my heart is that you will hear this word and receive it and that you will enter into a place of prayer, not just where you ask God for what you need, and not just where you value your relationship, but when you value what God wants and God needs and you give yourself over to the cause of his kingdom in this time. And when you do, when you respond to this, I believe there's going to be a level of joy and influence in your city that you've been aching for, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring what it is that God wants to do through your community. So my simple prayer is this, pray the bold, dangerous, costly, agonizing, joy-filled prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.